This is what Paul told that congregation 2,000 years ago. He said, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now, isn't that an upbeat way of saying? He's saying, hey, you're doing great. Verse 10, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Don't think you're all right. Just keep going. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now that's going to be an interesting thing to talk about in America. We try and make it louder and faster and fuller and more exciting. And, and like I told you, the amusement parks, they just, you know, they've got to have the triple back twist, you know. They, 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 who wants to lead a quiet life? It sounds kind of boring. But Christians should have it as their ambition. They should make it. Make it. Because you naturally won't. We, want to be, we don't want it to be quiet. But make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That means every part of your life. Do you see where the Puritans got the black outfits and not talking stuff? From here. And to attend to your own business. And work with your hands. You know, you know, you know how you say this in, in vernacular? Be quiet, mind your own business, and work. I mean, that's what, you know. But he's much more gracious than that. I mean, that's what you'd say to children. So he says, make it your ambition to be quiet. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. A very full passage. Work ethic, the quiet life, loving the brethren. We're only going to look at loving the brethren tonight. You can see where we're going in the future. But in God's book, a lack of love is the worst situation a person could enter. In fact, God considers loveless living much worse than things we would consider repugnant. Now, I want to show you what I mean by turning back to Ezekiel 16. You say, Ezekiel? Yes, what a great book. Back to the middle of your Bible, and then further back to the left is Ezekiel 16. And I don't want to shock you and don't want to alarm you, but this passage of Scripture, God explains how serious loveless living can be. And that's why I want to read this as the negative, and then positively examine everything that God says we're supposed to be and how we can cultivate love and, and just some homework that all of us can start into even tonight and enlarge still more in our life. But God says loveless living is horrendous and it's repugnant and it's dangerous. I'm going to read to you uh, verse 48 and then 49. As I live, declares the Lord God, and that's a big statement, Ezekiel 16:48. as I live... I mean, God is infinite and immortal and endless of days. He is the source of life. He is eternal. He says, and as I live, and that's about one of the greatest statements. In fact, God's personal name revealed to Moses is, is uh, Eyeh Ashe Eyeh in Hebrew, which means I am that I am. That's his personal name. How would you like that? I am the ever-existing one. God is. I mean, the reason that we exist is because of God. Because he is existing. We are corollary to that, and we are only because of that. And so it's a big statement to say, as I live. I mean, that's, uh, that would be one of the greatest statements that, that God could make. But as I live, declares the Lord, Sodom, your sister. Sodom? Wait a minute. Sodom? I mean, there's a sin named after that place, isn't there? Sodomy? Sodomites? I mean, that's a gross place, right? Your sister? 
and her daughters have not done as you have done? Oh, who's he talking about? Well, back up to 46. Your older sister is Samaria. So he's talking to the southern kingdom, Judah. She lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister who lives south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Verse 47. Yet you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. Now right now in, well, it used to be in American culture about the worst thing that you could talk about someone doing. I mean, one of the most distasteful, uh, never was discussed things was, of course, homosexuality. It was just the closet. That's why they said they came out of the closet. It used to be in the closet. And you never talked about it. It was so repugnant. You know what God says to, to that sin? He says their sin is worse. Now, what is it? Are they sacrificing babies? I mean, are they eating human cannibals? What are they doing that's that bad? Verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Oh, no, here it comes. Moral profligacy and contumacious living and indomitable immorality. No, no, look what it was. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, carelessly at ease, and didn't help the poor and needy. Wait a minute. Where's the homosexuality, you know? Where's all that stuff? God says, he says, arrogancy, abundant overeating, carelessly at easeness, and refusal to help the poor and needy is worse than sodomy. And he said that the Jews of Jerusalem were guilty of those things. Did you know, in God's estimation, loveless living of people that have been exposed to the love of God is worse than immoral living for people that don't care about God. And you know, I bet out of the two, three hundred here tonight, you're far more likely to be drawn to, and for me to be drawn to, arrogance and abundant food and careless ease and not helping the poor and needy than we are to bestiality and sodomy. Did you know that we're far more likely to be involved in loveless living than in licentious living. And God says, and in his book, a lack of love is one of the worst situations a person could ever enter into. In fact, loveless living is far worse than things we consider repugnant. Moral immorality, moral decadence. Now think about it, how important God considers love and the manifestation of love. If you're loving, verse 49, you're not arrogant, you're humble. If you're loving, you're not thinking about your appetite and the abundance of your food. You're thinking about ministering to others. And if you're loving, you're not carelessly at ease. You're, you're looking how you can minister to others. And if you're loving, you are helping the poor and you're helping the needy. And if you are not loving, then, then it's very easy to soon become arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Do you know what describes a lot of America? Arrogant, overfed, unconcerned people. That's where our nation is getting to be. We're, we're getting to be thinking about ourselves first. I'm talking about nationally, not about the church. I'm talking about our culture. Okay, 
sit back and I want to read to you for a minute before we go through this text in the scriptures and answer the question, what does the love of Christ look like? I mean, we've, I've heard, you've heard, we've sang about the love of Christ. What does it look like? What does that utterly transforming love of Christ look like when it's clothed in human flesh? What does it look like in a person? I mean, that's, we're people. We're not books. We're little epistles, but we're written in flesh. We're people. What does it look like when the love of Christ transforms us and when we learn to do, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, and he says, excel in this love of the brethren. Just overflow in it. Because you're taught by God to love one another. When God comes in to a life and when he invades by our invitation for him to come in, when he invades and just flows through our life, what does it look like? Let me just read to you briefly a modern portrait of what Christ's love in action looks like. And this is the biography. I'm reading from a biography of Boris Cornfield, a Russian doctor. I bet most of you have never met Boris, probably never heard of him. But I want to read his biography just briefly. It'll take a time. It takes about eight minutes, okay? No reporters have visited the prison camps of Soviet Russia unless they have gone there as prisoners. So to this day, we have very little information about the millions who have lived, suffered, and died, especially those during Stalin's reign of terror. But from time to time, scraps of information have filtered out about a few one of those few was Boris Nikolaevich Cornfield. Boris was a medical doctor. We don't know what crime Dr. Cornfield committed, but that it was a political crime, we can be sure. Perhaps he dared one day suggest to a friend that their leader, Joseph Stalin, was fallible. Or maybe he simply was accused of harboring that thought. It took no more than that to become a prisoner in the Russia of the early 1950s. Many had died for less. At any rate, Cornfield was imprisoned in a concentration camp for political subversives at Ekbechtus, up in Siberia. Ironically, a few years behind barbed wire is a good cure for anyone's communism. Stripped of all past associations, of all that had kept them busy and secure, behind the wire, prisoners had time to think. And so it was that this Russian doctor abandoned all his socialistic ideals. In fact, he went further than that. He did something behind that wire concentration camp barrier that would have horrified his Jewish ancestors. Boris Cornfield became a Christian. While few Jews living anywhere in the world find it easy to accept Jesus Christ as a Messiah, a Russian Jew would find it even more difficult. Yet following a revolution, a the Russian Revolution that is, a strange alignment occurred. Joseph Stalin demanded the undivided, unquestioning loyalty to his government by all. But both Jews and Christians knew that their ultimate loyalty was to God. And consequently, people of both groups suffered for their beliefs and often found themselves in the same camps. Thus it was that Boris Cornfield came into contact there in that camp with a devout Christian, a well-educated and kind fellow prisoner who spoke of a Jewish Messiah who had come to keep the promises the Lord had made to Israel. This Christian, whose name we do not know, pointed out that Jesus had spoken almost solely to the Jewish people and proclaimed that he came to the Jew first. And he explained the Bible promised a new kingdom of peace was coming. This nameless man often recited aloud in Boris's presence the Lord's Prayer, 
And Boris heard in those simple words a strange ring of truth. Well, the camp had stripped Cornfield of everything, including his belief in salvation through socialism, so now this man was offering him hope. But in what a form? To accept Jesus Christ? To become one of those who had always persecuted his Jewish people? Why, that was betrayal to his family and of all who had gone before him. But Cornfield pondered what the Christian prisoner had told him. In one commodity, time, the doctor was rich. And the more he reflected on it, the more it began to change him within. Though a prisoner, Cornfield lived in better conditions than most behind the wire. Other prisoners were expendable, but doctors, doctors were scarce in the remote, isolated camps. A commandant never knew when in his sickness he would have to be treated by one of the prison camp doctors. Cornfield's resistance to the Christian message might have begun to weaken while he was in surgery one day. Perhaps it was while he was working on one of those horrible guards he had learned to loathe. The man had been knifed and an artery was cut in his body. And while suturing the blood vessel, Dr. Cornfield thought of tying the thread in such a way that it would reopen shortly after surgery. Then the guard would die quickly and no one would be the wiser. The process of taking this particular form of vengeance gave rein to the burning hatred Cornfield had for the guards and all like him. And at that point, Boris Cornfield became appalled by the hatred and violence he saw in his very own heart. And as Cornfield began to retie the sutures properly this time, he found himself almost unconsciously repeating the words he had heard from that fellow prisoner now transferred to a different camp. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Those were mighty strange words in the, mouths of, in the mouth of a Jew, yet he could not help praying them. Having seen his own evil heart, he had to pray for cleansing, and he had to pray to a God who had suffered, and he had to pray to Jesus. Well, doctors in the camp's medical section were also asked to sign decrees for imprisonment in the punishment block, and any prisoner whom the authorities running the camp didn't like or they wanted out of the way were sent to that block of solitary confinement. It was a tiny, dark, cold torture chamber of a cell. A doctor's signature on the form certified the prisoner was strong and healthy enough to withstand the punishment. This, of course, was a lie. And rarely did anyone emerge alive from the prison cell of solitary confinement. Like all the other doctors, Cornfield had signed his share of the forms. What was the difference? They would die anyway. But shortly after he began to pray for forgiveness, Dr. Cornfield stopped authorizing the punishment. He refused to sign the forms. Though he had signed hundreds of them, now he couldn't. Whatever had happened inside of him would not permit him to do it. This rebellion was bad enough, but Cornfield didn't stop there. He even turned in one of the orderlies who had broken the rules. Now, orderlies were drawn from a group of prisoners who cooperated with the authorities. They had become the cooks, the bakers, the clerks, and the hospital orderlies. They would steal food from the other prisoners and would gladly kill anyone who tried to report them or even give them trouble. While making his rounds one day, Cornfield came to one of his many patients who was suffering from pellagra, an all-too-common disease in the camps. When the doctor asked the dying patient his name, the man was so sick he couldn't even remember it. 
Just after leaving this patient, Cornfield came around the corner upon a hulking orderly, bent over the remains of the loaf of white bread that had been meant for this patient. This man looked up shamelessly, his cheeks stuffed with the food. Cornfield had known about the stealing and had known it was one of the reasons his patients never recovered, but his vivid memory of that dying man who couldn't even remember his name pierced him now. He could no longer shrug his shoulders and go on. It was a preposterous thing to stand on principle in that situation, particularly when he knew that the orderly might get him back in return. And when Cornfield went to the commandant and turned in the orderly, the officer who wrote down the report looked at that complaint and stared at Boris very curiously. The doctor was arranging his own execution, he thought. Boris Cornfield was not an especially brave man. He knew his life would be in danger as soon as the orderly was released from the cell block three days later. So the doctor began staying in the hospital, catching sleep when he could and wherever he could. He lived in a strange twilight world wherever any moment might be found as his last. But paradoxically, along with this anxiety came a tremendous freedom. Having accepted the possibility of death, Boris Cornfield was now free to live. He signed no more papers or documents sending men to their deaths. He no longer turned his eyes from cruelty. He no longer shrugged his shoulders when he saw injustice. And soon he realized that the anger and hatred and violence of his own soul had vanished. He wondered whether there lived another man in Russia who knew such freedom. Now Boris Cornfield wanted to tell someone about his discovery, about this new life of obedience and freedom Jesus had brought. And so one gray afternoon, he examined a patient who had just been operated on for cancer of the intestines. This young man, with a melon-shaped head and a hurt little boy expression, so touched the soul of this doctor. And so Dr. Cornfield began to talk to the patient. He described what had happened to him. And once the tale began to come out, Cornfield couldn't stop. The patient missed some of the first of the story, for he was drifting in and out of anesthesia's influence. But the doctor's ardor caught his concentration, and he held it. And though the patient was shaking with fever, all through the afternoon and late into the night, he listened as the doctor talked and described his conversion to Christ and his newfound freedom. The patient knew he was listening to an incredible confession. Though the pain from his operation was severe and his stomach was heavy and expansive, like an agony of molten lead, he hung on every word Dr. Cornfield said until at last he fell asleep. That young patient awoke early the next morning to the sound of running feet and a commotion in the area of the operating room. His first thought was of this doctor, but his new friend didn't come. And then the whispers of fellow patients told him of Cornfield's fate. During the night, while the doctor slept, someone had crept up beside him and, taking a plasterer's mallet, had dealt eight fatal blows to his head. And though his fellow doctors had worked valiantly to save him, in the morning the orderlies carried out a still, broken, lifeless form. But Cornfield's testimony did not die. The patient who had listened the night before pondered the doctor's last impassioned words and as a result, he too became a Christian. He survived that prison camp and went on to tell the world what he had learned there. Of course, that patient's name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The melon-shaped, melancholic cancer patient 
who Boris Cornfield led to Christ. Boris Cornfield's life as a hate-filled Jew parallels the Thessalonians' testimony that when you turn to Jesus Christ, and if you turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians, I want to show you what I mean, the love of God transforms you. Paul mentions this seven times in this little epistle. If you've never marked these, you ought to. The seven times he talks about the transforming love that is birthed by the new birth from God that transforms our lives into unearthly love of those around us, that causes us to love the unlovable, to forgive those who have hurt us, and to seek to win all that we meet because of the love of Christ. In verse 3 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul tells us this, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God. And he says, number one, the love that Christ brings is our motivation. It's work and labor that's prompted by love. And when we have the love that God wants to bring into our lives, it motivates us to labor for him. Want to do a little check and see how you're doing spiritually? Does the love of Christ motivate you? Is it the motivation for what you do? 1 Corinthians 13 says that, that we can give everything we have, we can even jump on the funeral pyre and burn ourselves alive for Christ. And if we're not motivated by love, it doesn't count. I read this week about a sad situation, and, and I'll always remember the words. It says that the people that I was reading about were so concerned with being Christians that they forgot to be Christ-like. They were so concerned with crossing the T's and dotting the I's that they had neglected the very essence of the Christian message, which is to be Christ-like. Paul says our motivation of life, our labor, is motivated by love. It's a labor of love. And what we do for Christ, our labor is motivated by his love. Verse 4, that love finds its origination in God. It says, knowing this, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loveth is born of God. The origination of the love comes from God. John put it this way, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. You know what, what manner means? It means where did it come from? It's not from here on earth. It's not normal. It's not human. It's not natural. It's divine. And the origination of that love is from God. So our motivation is, is geared by his love. It originates in God. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6, the third time he mentions love. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. What was the production of their lives? What came out of their lives when they had the message of Christ come to them? Love and faith. It was the production. It was the product. You know, I planted a lot of seeds this spring. And you know what? Those seeds produce something in our yard, in our garden. And the product of the seed of God's life in us is faith and love. And the emphasis tonight on love. And, and people all the time, I, I ask them, I, it's a regular question, I say, are you a born-again Christian? Oh, I went to church. Oh, I went forward. Oh, I prayed. Oh, I was baptized. Oh, I do this. Well, do you remember the day you were born? I don't remember the day I was born, but I know I'm alive today. You might not remember the day you were born into the kingdom of God, but that's not the important answer we're looking for. Are you alive in Christ? How do you know if you're alive? Because the product of the life of Christ is faith and love. 
And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And if we don't have, and by the way, love is not a noun. It is a verb. It is an action. Love is not present. If, if it's a thought, if it's a feeling, it's, it's present if it's an action, if it's prompting us. And so the production of these saints' lives was love. Look at verse 12. Not only was it the motivation of all their work originated by God and produced in their life, but chapter 3, verse 12 says it was also the whole direction of their life. Their whole life had gone from lovelessness, indolence and, and indulgence and, and cold-heartedness we saw in Ezekiel to a new direction in life. And that new direction, it says in verse 12, is, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men just as we do for you. He says, he says, your lives have turned. You have, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 says, you have turned to God. You, when, when someone gets saved, they turn. They do a 180. They just turn around and go a new direction. And the new direction is in verse 12. And it says this, that God is causing us to ever be increasing and overflowing in love for one another. And not just for the lovable Christians, but for everyone. A new direction in life. A brand new direction that is motivated, finds its origination, and produces love. Well, he doesn't stop there. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. His love is our motivation. His love was our origination. His love is the production of our life. His love is the direction of our life. But chapter 4, verse 9 says his love is the confirmation that we have partaken of the love of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now as to the love of the brethren... We don't have any need for anyone to write to you about that. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. The confirmation of whether or not we're in Christ is not whether or not we can go, mm, what they tell me to do, let's see, I've got to do that now. Oh, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to do that. No, no, that's what it says in First John. You don't need anybody to teach you. You have an anointing from God, and that anointing, the Holy Spirit's signature on our life is that we become partakers of Romans 5, that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us if we're born again. When you're wondering if you're saved, you don't have to look for your baptismal certificate or talk to the counselor that when you went forward in the crusade. What you have to ask yourself is, just, just look inside. Do you see chapter 4, verse 9? Do you see the love of the brethren in your life? Now, now what is love? When young people love each other, when, when they're just falling in love, as we call it, what happens? You just can't keep them away from each other. They, they want to talk to each other. They want to write to each other if they're at a distance. They want to call each other on the phone. They want to spend time together. They just look at each other. I mean, you don't have to say, you know, what are you going to do? You just can sit there and just look at each other. I mean, I could sit and look at Bonnie all day. I mean, I wish I had all day to just sit and look at her. I mean, I just like to be in the same room with her. It's just a treat. And I mean, I want pictures of her, and I want to spend time with her. I want to just do anything I can because I love her. Do you have that kind of love for the brethren, for other Christians? Do you have that kind of love for the body of Christ? Is it like, oh, do we have to go again? You know, we've already been once this month or once this week. Do we have to go again, you know? And it's just, oh. When you find yourself repelled and repulsed and, and dragging your feet and, and you have to be forced, you should just step back and let go of the rope and don't be dragged and say, is God teaching me to love the saints? Am I drawn to them? 
you know, love has to be selective and aggressive. If you're ever going to love someone, especially if you're going to get married, you have to be selective. You have to just love one, and you have to pursue them. And that's, that's the truth all the way through the Scripture. If you love God, you have to select that you're going to love Him with all your heart, and then you have to pursue Him your whole life. That's what His love's all about. Has God ever taught you to selectively, out of all the people in the world, we're supposed to love the people of God the most. And we're to pursue them. That's why it says pursue love, pursue love. Look at chapter 5. And uh, the next one is in verse 8. His love is our motivation. His love was our origination. His love is the production of our life. His love is the direction of our life. His love is the confirmation that his life is in us. Chapter 5, verse 8. His love is also our protection. Look at this. Let us be sober. We saw that last week. You know, sober-minded, not clouded, not breathing in Satan's toxic poison. Having, how do you do that? Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. There it is again. The breastplate, protecting our heart, protecting the, the vital organs with faith and love. How do you protect? Well, did you know Christ said the whole law is fulfilled by loving. If you love God, you won't take his name in vain. And you won't have any other idols. And you won't love anyone more than him. And you will have intimacy with him. That's what the Sabbath day is all about. And if you love God, you will not be stealing and killing. And, and you will not be committing adultery. And you won't be coveting. And you won't be lying if you love someone. He says it fulfills all the law. That's our protection. You ever want to know what to do in a situation? What would the love of Christ do? I mean, you don't have to carry around, you know, endless lists of rules. That's why we don't have endless lists of rules. The whole law is fulfilled in this point. Love God, most of all, and love everyone else as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills the first and second commandment, Christ said. Those are the two biggies, both tablets of the law. There were four on the Ten Commandments on this side about God and six on this side about man. And he says, you don't even have to memorize all those things. If you love God supremely, you've got that under control. And if you love others as yourself, then you've got that under control. And he said, that's our protection. And the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He said, that's all you need. You're protected. And finally, verse 13 of chapter 5. It's interesting. Love... The love of God is what motivates us. It originated from Him. He produces it in our life. It's the whole direction of our life. It confirms we're in God. It protects us and keeps us in God. And you know what else marvelously occurs in verse 13? It says, And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live at peace with one another. Do you know what else love does? It's our submission. It's what makes us submissive. Do you know what basically we're born being unsubmissive? I mean, as soon as we can talk, you're not going to tell me what to do. You know, nobody's going to run my, I'm going to do my own thing. That's just, that's how we're born. That's Esau. That's the old life. Do you know what Christ does? He makes us submissive. He says, Verse 12, we request you, in 5.12, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, who have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love. Did you know sometimes it's hard to be submissive? Did you know that God has a whole hierarchical system? God the Father is over God the Son. God the Son is over the church. And in the church, God has placed elders, men elders, in our world, which is, you know, kind of right there are fighting words, that God has gender-specific roles in the church, and God said that men are to be the elders and the pastors and the leaders, and that, that the church is to line up underneath them. You say, what if they make mistakes? Well, so what if they do make mistakes? They have to answer to their commanding officer. 
that's over them in the hierarchy. All we have to do is submit. Now, not to disobey God. The Bible doesn't say you submit and disobey. We obey God rather than man. But even though they're fallible and even though they make mistakes, we still submit to them because that is an exhibit of the submission that comes of love. And that works out in every realm. It works out in the home because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. You say, oh, but you know, it's hard. Yes. I'll quote a notable spiritual authority. They told me, it's a woman, and I married to her. She said, submission is one of the most difficult things in life. I never knew that until I asked her. I thought it was easy to live with me. (laughs) It's not. But you know what? The Bible says that we submit because of love. And we get into our, our hierarchical places that God wants us to be because we love Him. And we realize that His love transforms us into living in this way. Well, what does the scripture say? And I just want to leave you with this. Four things, and you can just jot them down. We just have a couple of minutes with them. And they're in Philippians, uh, the first two. Philippians 1.9. What do we do to get this love going in our life that, that Paul says we should excel in? Philippians 1.9, we need to let it out. I mean, we've already got it. The Holy Spirit has, has indwelt us with God's love. Look what it says in Philippians 1.9. And this I pray, that your love will overflow more and more in knowledge and all discernment. He says, abound in love. How do you do that? Let it out. Let, don't compartmentalize your life and put your Christian life over here and then you've got your school life and you've got your work life and whatever else. Let the love of God just flow out into all this. Just let it out. You know what the Lord says? Out of us will flow rivers of living water. And in that living water is the love of God welling up into our lives. Let it out. Look at Philippians 2.2. This solves 99% of our Problems in interpersonal relationships, lose your rights, it says in Philippians 2.2. 2. Here's what it is. Fulfill ye my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. How does all that occur? Let the mind of Christ be in us. What did Christ do? He surrendered his rights. Who being in the form of God, I mean, he had every right you could have. We have really no rights. He had them all, and he surrendered them. You know, if we let go, if we lose our rights, our personal rights that we hold on to and we fight for and we get hurt and we get angry and we get miffed and we get bent, uh, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my life around dead people. You know, I get to be there when they die. I get to be with the families. I get to be, I remember one family in California, their, their 89-year-old mother died in her house and they broke the door down. They said, you go in first. We don't want to go in there. I mean, as if she was going to do something to me, you know. And so I opened the door and I walked in and there she was sitting with her Bible by her bedstand, you know, just dead in her bed. She had been reading the Bible and died in her sleep. It was wonderful. But you know what? We were a little late getting there. She didn't get upset. You know, I I mean, the house was messy. It didn't bother her that we were in there. I mean, did you notice dead people don't react to stuff that we react to? And you know what the Bible says? It says, you're dead. I'm dead. And my life is hid with Christ in God. You know, it's funny. You know, that dead people don't get mad, and dead people don't get even, and dead people don't get angry. And they're not jealous. And the Bible says that we, when we have the mind of Christ, we realize that we have died with Christ and we are hidden with Christ and that we are new creatures because the old man that we were, the old person is buried with Christ. And what we do is we lose our rights. And when we lose our rights, 
Let's just turn to one last one. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And this is what I want to leave you with to chew on as you go home. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. We already have it. Let it out. Lose your rights and lavish it on everybody else. That's why I like verse 8. It says just lavish it. Uh, I mean, when I let Joseph have a uh, knife... He always wants to butter stuff. Hmm, boy, you watch out. He's going to use half the butter dish. He just lavishes that butter on there. He just, and then you let him loose with the jelly, and he just goes like this. You know, I mean, it's just you can't even see the bread anymore. It's just lavished. That's what God says. When you let out His love, when you lose your rights, when you lavish it, it just runs over. It just, it's like jelly falling off every corner, and you know, it just gets all over you when you eat it. It just gets all over everybody. That's what God says our Christian lives are supposed to be like. Let, or or above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You know, we're all sinners. We're all sinning and doing little things in ways someone else wouldn't do it. And you know know what? When you have love, it just covers all that up. It's just like sticky jelly. just covers it all up. Just, Just smears it. And he said that's the only way the church can operate because it's a whole bunch of of fallen weak people that need to lavish his love on others how can we do that this week how about initiating making up with someone that you've had a disagreement with lately that'd be a great way to start initiate making up a quarrel that you've had maybe with your children with your parents with your relatives with your neighbors how about calling someone that you haven't seen for a long time lavish some love on them Surprise them. How about choosing to trust someone that, that you've been suspicious about, but there's no reason for your suspicion? How about asking the Lord to show you the bitterness in your life that someone that hurt you, that you say, I'll never forgive them? God's love can be lavished and can cause you and me to turn from all bitterness. There's so many. We can tell someone that we know well how much they've meant to us, We can forget when someone has done something wrong to us and ask God to forgive them and and we can forgive them. We can express our gratitude during the day. We can pray for those who have hurt us like Christ told us to. Basically, what the Bible says is, right here in verse 8, we can just love like Christ loved us. It says it's heaped up and it's overflowing, and out of us flow rivers of life. And the best way to let his river of life out is in the vehicle of his love. Basically, let it out, lose your rights, and then just lavish his love on all we meet. Let's bow and ask the Lord to bring this to pass in our lives as we go. Father, I thank you for Boris Cornfield who listened to the good news about you, Lord Jesus, but he didn't just listen, he became a doer and your saving grace transformed his life and it made him love and it took away his hatred and his bitterness and his violence and his anger and it made him a minister of your love thank you that he talked impassionedly to that cancer patient who recorded his story in his writings so that we could be blessed by seeing love in action. I pray that our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools 
and our families will be blessed by your love in action. Help us to love one another fervently. Help it to run over. Help it to spread from our lives. May we lavish it on those around us. Because by this shall all know that we're your disciples by our love. We pray in your lovely name, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you as you go.